We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews and the first chapter of the book of Hebrews and the first chapter this morning. And I will be reading and then preaching on verses 5 through 14. In fact, a continuation of our sermon last Sunday. I invite you to read along silently this morning as I read aloud these passages of Scripture. Here, beginning in verse 5, the writer to the Hebrews writes, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness or uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end." And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this privilege that is ours to worship you in spirit and in truth, and we would ask now for the work of your Holy Spirit, that he would be our teacher and guide, he would reveal to us the meaning of this text this morning, and that we would, because of your work in us, rejoice in its truth. We pray that our lives would be transformed, that our minds would be renewed, that our hearts would be refreshed and revitalized because of what we hear today. So bless us as we receive this food from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we have been considering since we started this series in the book of Hebrews, the superiority of Jesus can be seen very plainly in many ways. First, it can be seen in the central place that Jesus holds in God's redemptive revelation for All of Scripture points to Jesus Christ, and Christ is clearly God's final word. For all that God has revealed to us in these last days about his glory and about his divine nature, he has revealed to us through his Son. In fact, we have no need to seek any revelation outside of Jesus Christ, who is the heir of all things. Secondly, the superiority of Christ can be seen in his unique office as God's 
appointed mediator. In fact, this is declared in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, and in his work as our great prophet, priest, and king. For not only does he uphold all things by the word of his power, speaking and sustaining all things as only the word himself can do, but Jesus now reigns from his kingly majesty on high, having already made purification for our sins as our great high priest. And needless to say, this threefold work of Christ sets him apart from all other prophets, all other priests, all other kings who went before him. For there has never been another mediator who possessed the same power or the same perfection or the same place of majesty and authority that Jesus Christ now possesses. And so as the writer of this epistle presents Jesus here in chapter 1 and throughout this entire epistle, he does so by emphasizing that Christ occupies a superior place, a superior office, and that out of that office, he has not only re revealed God, he has not only removed our sins, but he also reigns now in heavenly glory. And then thirdly, and this is the theme that we began to unfold last Sunday morning, and we want to continue unfolding and contemplating it today, we see that Christ is also superior to the angels. For while the angels played a significant role in many of the major redemptive events of the Old Testament, and while the elect angels are certainly to be admired and to be praised for their unceasing devotion and worship of God, the fact is that the angels were and are by no means superior to Jesus. In fact, to elevate the angels in our minds to a position above Jesus is to reverse the divine order altogether. For the angels are not above Jesus, they are below Jesus. And if we give the angels that esteem and reverence that belongs only to Christ, we, we end up dishonoring Christ by giving more credit to the creature than we do to the creator, who is Christ himself. And so it is absolutely critical, especially in the day that this epistle to the Hebrews was written in, that those who had been confronted with the superior claims of Christ understood that Christ was and is superior even to the angels. And why is he superior to the angels? Well, as we began to consider last Sunday, the writer of this epistle answers this question, or, or better yet, he makes the case that Christ is superior to the angels by stringing together a series of Old Testament proclamations and promises just as the designer of a piece of elegant, expensive jewelry would string together a necklace of pearls. I love that imagery. I love that idea of watching someone string together a beautiful necklace of pearls because that's really what the inspired writer is doing here. And the first five pearls, which are strung together, and we, we saw this last Sunday morning, are presented in verses 5 through 9. And all the proclamations and promises in these verses speak to the person, the rights, and the privileges of, of Jesus Christ. In fact, let me just mention them. Let me just review them again briefly. First, the writer of this epistle begins in verse 5 
by stringing together two Old Testament passages that identify Christ uniquely as the Son of God. The Son of God. These passages are Psalm 2, verse 7, 1 Samuel 7, and verse 14. That's Psalm 2, 7, 1 Samuel 7, and verse 14. For although there is a sense in which created beings can be referred to as sons of God, in fact, we talked about the fact that the book of Job refers to the angels as sons of God. Only Christ is the eternal Son. And it is in his role as the eternal Son, as the only begotten of the Father, that Christ was given a name that is more excellent than the, na- than the angels, a name that is above every other name. By quoting these two great Old Testament passages, again, Psalm 2, 7, 1 Samuel 7, 14, the writer reveals that these words were directed to Jesus as the one who would be given the nations for his own inheritance and as the one who would be dear in the sight of the Father, the one who would inhabit the eternal throne that was promised to the royal descendant of King David. Then secondly, in verses 6 and 7 of Hebrews 1, the writer of this epistle adds to this scriptural necklace two more pearls. So he he starts with five and then starts with these, these other ones I mentioned before, and then he adds two more. Namely, Psalm 97 and verse 7, which is also a a quotation of Deuteronomy 32:43 and Psalm 104 and verse 4. And in quoting these verses, he reminds us that God's own charge to his angels reveals that the angels were created not to be in a place of superiority, but to worship and to serve Christ, not to occupy a place over him, but to occupy a place under him. In fact, the angels, in the words of verse 7, are Christ's ministers created to do his bidding. They are not masters over him who created them. Then thirdly, the writer to this epistle adds a fifth pearl to this scriptural necklace here in Hebrews 1, and it is an elegant pearl indeed. And this pearl is the words of Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And this passage is significant because in this passage we find the greatest of the kingly psalms. It is a psalm which speaks not only of the eternal throne that was promised to Christ as the divine son, but it also speaks of the favor that Christ would enjoy as God's victorious and ascended king. For to none of the angels was such a throne promised. To none of the angels was there reserved the kind of joy that Christ experienced when he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. For the angels can only gaze upon God's redemptive work through Christ with amazement and admiration. But Christ accomplished God's redemptive work, and he continues to apply the merits of his own redemptive work from his exalted place in heaven. And of course, as he does so, Christ confirms the fact that he was chosen, that he was anointed by God the Father for a heavenly kingship that no mere angel could employ 
or so rightly enjoy. And so these scriptural pearls that the writer of this epistle has skillfully strung together so far here in Hebrews 1 present to us a portrait of Christ that is more heavenly than is found anywhere else in Holy Scripture. For they leave us with no doubt as to who Christ, God the Son, is. They leave us no questions as to whether Christ possessed the Father's divine favor or not, for it's repeatedly pronounced in these passages. And these verses leave us no reservations with respect to the kind of reverence and worship that Christ should receive from those he has created. For just as the angels were commanded to worship him, we also are called to acknowledge Christ and to render him that which he deserves by name, by title, and by divine right. And yet, beloved, these are not the only pearls that the writer strings together here in Hebrews chapter 1. For here in our, our text, continuing in our text, verses 10 through 14, we see that he adds two more. He adds two more. And it might appear, after what has already been added, that these two additional pearls are unnecessary. For after all, the pearls that have already been strung on this necklace are, are far more sufficient to establish who Christ was, what he's been promised by the Father, and what he now enjoys being seated on the right hand of the majesty on high. What more needs to be added? What, what more could be added? Well, we see here, beginning in verse 10, two more precious and priceless pearls which point to the person and power of Jesus Christ. And the first one is found here in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And it's taken from word by word from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, which is a, a fascinating portion of Scripture in its own right. For Psalm 102 is a psalm of one who has been greatly afflicted, but one who afterwards rejoices in the permanent and unperishing purposes of Almighty God. In fact, many Bible scholars see in the many afflictions described by the psalmist in the first part of Psalm 102 a, a portrait of the afflicted Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ clothed and suffering in his lowly humanity. For in the first 24 verses of Psalm 102, it's a long psalm, as you can tell, the psalmist laments the fact that he is subjected to the weakness and the decay of all created things. For all his days, according to Psalm 102, verses 3 and 4, were passing away like smoke, and his bones were being burnt like a furnace, and his heart was being struck down like grass, and it was withering. And no doubt these words describe the thoughts and the discomforts of one who is painfully aware of his own decay and of the brevity of his own life. In fact, the psalmist expresses here these same, thing, same themes again in verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 102, where he says this, Because of your indignation and anger, you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow, and I wither away like grass. 
So within the first 11 verses of Psalm 102, we hear the sadness of one who is gripped by the reality that life is a constant struggle, that life can be painful and bitter, and that life itself is incredibly short. And all of this because of the sinfulness of mankind, all of this because of the sentence of death which falls upon those who are subject to it. In fact, in some ways, it's not dissimilar to the language of other psalms found in the Old Testament, although I've stated to you earlier that many commentators see this as messianic in nature, uh, pointing to Jesus Christ. Yet in the second half of Psalm 102, which begins in verse 12, and which concludes with the words that are quoted here in Hebrews 1, verses 10 through 12, we hear the rejoicing of one who finds the answers to life's disappointments and difficulties and despairs in the eternal presence, power, and purpose of Almighty God. That's where the answer is, in God. Not in circumstances, not in riches, not in dreams fulfilled, but in the eternal presence, power, and purpose of God. For Psalm 102, verse 12, begins with the words, But you, O God, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. And it ends with the words of our text, as recorded in Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you, God, are the same, and your years will have no end. And so, instead of wallowing in despair over man's turbulent and temporary state, the psalmist rejoices in the self-sustaining and eternal nature of God himself, for God does not change. That's a reason for great rejoicing brethren. God does not change, and the foundation that he has laid shall not be moved, not one inch. Don't care what's happening on the political scene. I don't care what's happening in the world of affairs, human affairs. God's foundation remains steadfast. God's foundation remains eternal. And, and of course, what's so amazing, what's so comforting about this wonderful proclamation concerning God and his eternal purposes is that they all find their fulfillment, they all find their justification, they all find their meaning in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who, as you know, is the focus of Hebrews chapter 1. For these words in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 are, are directed to the Son. Remember that. All these words are being spoken back at the Son. Scripture is being quoted at Christ. Sometimes the speaker, the one who's quoting the Scriptures back to Christ, is God the Father. Imagine that dynamic. What a dynamic. What a, what a scene. 
They're directed at the Son. He is the one who's addressed here in, in verse 10 as the Lord and Creator. He is the one who is addressed in verse 11 as the eternal and unchangeable one, the one who remains while all of creation wears out and perishes. He is the one who is always the same, having no end of years. For while the first half of Psalm 102 addressed the Lord and his afflictions, the second half of Psalm 102 addresses the Lord Jesus after he has ascended, after he has taken his seat in heavenly glory. For what we see here is not a man who is subject to weakness of human flesh or one who's now being afflicted or saddened by the suffering and death that once surrounded him when he lived and ministered among fallen mankind. But what we see here is the glorified Lord the glorified Lord sitting majestically upon his eternal throne. A throne that is rightfully his. Rightfully his as creator. Rightfully his because of his victorious work. For our text says, you have laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the works of your hands. And from that throne... He never ceases to reign. For our text says here in Hebrews 1 and verse 11, they, referring to the things which are created, will perish, but you remain. You continue ruling. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they shall be changed. But you, again, referring to Jesus Christ, are the same. Your years, or the years of your kingly rule, we could translate that, will have no end. For in quoting Psalm 102 here in Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, the writer of Hebrews is not only identifying Christ as the one who was afflicted, but the one who now reigns. He is also portraying Christ as the eternal king, the king who not only laid the foundation for all of creation, but the king who does not change in his being, the king who does not change in his essence. For while the garments of creation will fade and be forever discarded, the royal robes of Jesus will never fade. Nor will he cease to rule. And needless to say, these realities set Christ apart from the angels. Well, brethren, human words cannot adequately paint a picture of what the psalmist and of what the writer to the Hebrews is describing here in this language. Human words fail, but we do get a sense. We do get a glimpse. We do get a small portrait here of what Christ is experiencing in his ascended glory and of all the accolades, of all the praise that is being directed to him by God the Father. Not just the worship of the angels, but the praise, the affirmation, and the delight of his Father. Now I want us to notice here, beloved, that there's one final pearl that the writer of this epistle places on this royal necklace that he's been assembling and presenting here in Hebrews 1. This pearl is found here in verse 13. It's a quote from Psalm 110 in verse 1, which is another promise directed to Jesus Christ as our heavenly King. For once more... In addressing the superiority, superiority of Christ over the angels, the writer asks a question, to which of the angels has he, the Father, ever said, 
Sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And in quoting these words from Psalm 110 in particular, the writer is not establishing the kingship of Christ. In fact, he affirmed Christ's kingship in the verses or the pearls. He's already strong. But rather, the writer here is saying something about the nature and the timing of this kingship that Christ has been given. What is the nature of this kingship? It's a kingship that is unrivaled in terms of its honor and dignity. For first and foremost, it is a kingship that was established by the Father for the Son. It's a kingship that was established by the Father for the Son. And hear me carefully when I say this. Christ's kingship was not bestowed upon him by men, nor do men make Christ king. I put emphasis upon that because this is sorely misunderstood in our day. We hear a lot of talk in Christian circles, particularly within contemporary Christianity, about Christ's kingship being bestowed upon him by the decision of men or by the action or the cooperation of men. No, his kingship was established by God the Father. His kingship is a gift from the Father to Christ for his obedience. For only the Father could say to Jesus, sit at my right hand. Think about that. We, we don't place Christ on the right hand of the Father. It's the Father who says to the Son, Come, Son, sit at my right hand. By inviting Jesus to sit at his right hand, the Father is not only bestowing upon him a place of unparalleled honor and dignity, but he's giving Jesus the right to rule, the right to exercise authority over the Father's kingdom. And needless to say, Jesus began to exercise that right and authority the moment that he sat down, which Jesus did immediately after his ascension into glory. So again, remember that. Christ's kingship is a gift from the Father. It's not bestowed upon Christ by men. Men did not make Christ king. Men cannot dethrone Christ and make him less than king. Then secondly, as to the timing of Christ's kingship, and more specifically the time when the Father would begin making Christ's enemies his footstool, this text Psalm 110 and verse 1 plainly teaches that it began, it commenced in terms of his ascended kingship, the very moment that Christ sat down at the Father's right hand, for the text could also be translated, sit down at my right hand, then I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, I just want to pay attention to the words here because it's important that we see what is being said here. It's misunderstood by so many. The Father is not saying to Christ here, sit down at my right hand after your ascension and wait until the very end of all things when I will ultimately place all of your enemies under your feet. 
That's not what the text is saying. Rather, the Father said to Christ, Sit down here at my right hand, for then my promises to you as my son, as my anointed king, as my chosen heir will begin to unfold. Then the process of placing all your enemies beneath you will begin taking place. I want you to see how this is unfolding. It's really, really important. Again, the father is not saying to the son, sit down. Let's both patiently wait here till all things unfold, until man cooperates, until men decide to make you king. And then I'll begin to make all your enemies a footstool under your feet. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, sit down, my son. My beloved, victorious son, now I will begin the process of placing all your enemies under your feet. And of course, it's important for us to read this promise properly because if we don't, we might assume that the father hasn't acted yet on the son's behalf. Or that Jesus is still waiting for some future day when his enemies will bow the knee to him. And this simply isn't the case. For while we still wait to see every enemy of Christ bow to him, countless multitudes already have. And countless multitudes are. In fact, technically speaking, all of us were once his enemies. I want you to think about that. How many in the world throughout the history of Christianity have already bowed the knee to Jesus Christ? How many enemies have already been changed into followers? How many have already been made a footstool under his feet? And yet, despite the fact that there are so, in, so many enemies, they will be conquered. And many are still being conquered and shall be conquered in the future. For every time that the gospel is preached... It is conceivable that the Father will grant repentance and faith to those who once stood against Christ and continuing to fulfill his promise to his Son. And therefore, in view of the writer's use of Psalm 110 and verse 1, here in Hebrews 1.13, we should not fail to recognize the dignity of Christ's kingship, nor should we impose limits upon the fulfillment of the Father's promises to his son for at the very instant that Christ was seated at the father's right hand his enemies began to bow his enemies began to bow and they continue to do so until that time appointed by the father when there are no more and may that day come soon as the gospel continues to go forth with much power and so what should our final conclusion be after hearing the writer's comparison between Christ and the angels here in Hebrews chapter 1? Well, clearly we should be quick to acknowledge the vast superiority of Christ over the angelic beings. For the Old Testament passages or the scriptural pearls that the writer has gathered together throughout this chapter make the strongest possible case for seeing Christ not only as the sovereign creator of the angels but as their appointed Lord and King as well. In fact, it was popular in much of the rich theological literature of past generations to refer to Christ as the King over the angels. 
You don't really hear that terminology much anymore. Christ as king over the angels. But that was very popular phraseology generations ago. But we always need to ensure that we never number Jesus as being among the angels. It is appropriate always to prefer and to refer to Christ's kingship over them. However, when speaking of the angels themselves, I believe the writer of this epistle gives the best insights into why they can't possibly be superior over Jesus Christ as he considers who they are and how they work here in verse 14. For he asks the question, are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And so if we understand that they, the elect angels, are merely ministering spirits, that they have no agenda, they have no special calling, they have no special commission other than to serve Christ in the work of his redemptive kingdom, then we will, be not, we will not be tempted to give the angels too much attention. Nor will we be tempted to ignore their ministry and work altogether. They do have a role in ministering to those who will be saved. But that role is a subservient role under Jesus Christ. Again, the whole point here, brethren, is that Jesus Christ must have our central focus. He must have the focus. He must have the preeminence. He must stand exalted above all others. He must be in our view, in our hearts, in our minds, enthroned in heaven, where all of heaven worships him, especially the angels. Let us accept his superior, superiority over all things, over all things, whether they be created or otherwise. And if we'll keep these things in mind, brethren, we will not easily stumble. We will not be easily tempted to put too much value on their ministry at the expense of Christ's ministry. So this morning, let us see Christ as Hebrews chapter 1 presents him. What a wonderful introduction to this book. What a wonderful introduction to Jesus Christ as God's final word as our faithful mediator as that one who is superior to the mighty angels of God. May God give us a vision of Christ today and throughout this series that is pleasing to him and honoring to Christ and good for our own souls. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this book and for this chapter. We thank you for the truths that have been contained in it. And Father, we would ask this morning that what we've heard through these repeated Old Testament proclamations will raise our esteem, not of the angels, but of Christ himself. Help us to truly understand who Jesus Christ is, that he is your final word, that he is the eternal son, your only begotten son, the son who you said to sit at my right hand. He is the faithful mediator of salvation 
He is the one, as we've been considering for the last two Sundays, who is superior over all of the heavenly angels. And Father, with this new knowledge, with this confirmation in our minds of who Christ is, let worship flow from our hearts and minds as it never has before. May we truly get a vision through scripture of who Jesus Christ is in all of his kingly glory, in all of his majesty, and may our hearts melt. May our feet be swift to obey. May we be devoted to him in a way that we've never experienced and expressed before. For Jesus Christ deserves to be exalted. He deserves to be acknowledged for who he is. Not just over creation, not just over the angels, but within his church. Here in the church of God is where we should have the highest esteem for Jesus Christ. Here in the church of God is where we should be most indebted to the work of Jesus Christ because we've experienced redemption from him. We've experienced life and peace and forgiveness through his work. Because he now sits in heaven making intercession for us without ceasing. We enjoy all the benefits of his redemptive work. We enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit. We enjoy forgiveness. We enjoy strength and giftedness. Thank you so much that Christ is ascended and now sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high where he rules and where his enemies are now being made his footstool. It's not that the world is going crazy and we're just watching it, hoping it, hoping that one day something will happen. No, your, your purposes are ripening fast. Things are unfolding according to your purposes. Your enemies are being placed under Christ's feet. We may not see it. We may not understand it. We may not be able to grasp the whole of it and the entirety of it now, but one day in glory we will. So give us confidence that Jesus is reigning and ruling, that he's conquering his enemies, that his gospel is going forward, that his gospel is conquering people, that he's granting faith and repentance to his elect. Help us to have optimism and excitement and enthusiasm for the forward progress and future of the gospel. And may you encourage us as a church to double and redouble our efforts to labor in his kingdom with joy and to bring honor and glory to him. For we ask these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. <laughs>